welcome to another episode of the You Down with OVP podcast. I'm Nick, and I'm joined as always by James. James, March Madness is in full flight. Spring training is going. A lot of people are saying they're in the best shape of their life. James, are you in the best <laughs> shape of your life? I'm getting close to the best shape of my life. And you, I think you just hit the nail on the head as far as um, what's great about this time of year, right? Speaking of best shape of your life, though, and and everybody talks about it, but Vladito has lost 40 pounds, Mick. 40 pounds. Um, so, you know, there's best shape of your life, and then there's showing up to spring training 40 pounds less than you were, uh, you know, 365 days before. But yeah, no, I'm doing great in good shape. I've lost 10 pounds wow. in the past month. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm working on it. This martini that I'm drinking right now probably isn't helping, but uh, you sipping anything good for uh, for the podcast? Yeah, I went with Lagunitas uh, Daytime IPA. I wanted something that was like a little light, you know, something I, I say a lot when we do the pod. I want something drinkable, you know, crushable, as people say. Uh, so Lagunitas Daytime, I would definitely recommend. It's, uh, it's like 4% or 4.5%, something like that. Boom, there you go. Today, we are going to discuss 250 or lower uh, players as far as their ADP is concerned. And um, I think specifically, we're going to take some Twitter questions that we got from our OBP or you down with OBP faithful. Does that sum it up? Yeah, that sounds good. Do you want to get it started talking about a player? Yeah, definitely. So um, let's just start with pitching first. And I'm just as clueless as far as this category, this specific question. So it's actually a question that's been broached by our uh, faithful listeners as well. Relief pitching, right? So relief pitching, even in the middle of the season, is is a questionable gambit. Um, and going into the season, you know, before we've really seen anything, um, the, the whole circumstances are, are tough to pin down. So if we are looking at post 250 for ADP, I'll just bring up a player right now and say uh, Soria. When we're talking Soria, I just did a little bit of research on it. Seems like he's primed to be the the closer first off. It looks like he's going to be the, the first one to get cracks at it. Not on a very good team, so they might not come in that often, the, the, the save opportunities. But just from the little research I did, you know, where, where one of the concerns they mentioned was, hey, if this guy actually performs well, he's probably going to get traded because his team's not that good. And then he's going to go to middle relief. But in my line of thinking is, well, hey, if you have somebody that's lined up to be the closer at the beginning of the year, at least that gives you a chance to get a couple save opportunities. Well, you keep your eye out and keep your finger on the pulse of what's going on with the closer situation, because the closer situation for what half the teams, if not more, is going to be fluid throughout the year. So if you can just find a couple guys that are going to be actually in that position to begin with, maybe you're already a little bit ahead of the rest of the pack. Um, but what are your thoughts on on Soria, just to start with? I feel like Soria is a guy who signed late with the Diamondbacks. So you kind of get that added benefit of the fact that his ADP was quite low. And then it's creeped up. But when you look at that average draft position, it still maybe is lower than it should be. So if you're looking at a guy like Soria, let me just pull up his ADP since March 1st. So over the past three weeks. Yeah, I think right now Fantasy Pros has him somewhere at 260-ish, I think is what I saw. But let me know what you're seeing there. So I looked at NFBC. There's been 304 drafts since March 1st, and Soria's ADP is 290. So that's actually still very reasonable. And when you consider that he signed late, so he didn't have that sparkle of being a closer all offseason— 
And then when he signed, it seemed pretty much like, okay, they had Stefan Crichton as the guy who most people thought was going to be the closer. Soria comes in. He's done it before, right? He had a solid season with with the A's last year. I think he's got like 18 saves or something like that or more in the past couple seasons. So he he goes out. I mean, we're not talking, you know, lighting the world on fire numbers, but I think he's been fairly consistent for a a couple of years now. It's not like he went off the radar and had no saves for a year. And now he's getting refitted into that closer position. Yeah, exactly. 223 career saves. 19 in the last three years. Last year with Oakland, he had a, a 282 ERA and a 125 whip, 25% strikeout rate, so pretty good. His career MO is to have a low whip. And in 2019, he had a 103 whip. 2018, he had a 1.14 whip. Uh, so if you're getting a solid numbers, not spectacular strikeouts, but a low whip and a guy who could keep the job at least to the trade deadline, if the Diamondbacks are struggling, they could trade him. But like you said, you're getting those, what is it, April, May, June, July, four months of a closer who, obviously, every single closer might lose their job, right? But a guy who has a track record, he's getting up there in age, 36 years old, but uh, definitely a guy who is pretty much underpriced right now, considering he was late getting signed, didn't have that ADP boost in the beginning, but even since March, 290 ADP is really affordable. So I think that's a great call, James. Very undervalued and somebody who people should definitely be targeting. Good to hear. I think uh, he is untaken in my number one uh, league. So I'll probably try to scoop him up off waivers. And uh, Mick, was, did anybody catch your eye while we're still talking relief pitching? Um, I know a lot of the uh, Twitter followers were drooling at the bit and trying to get some ideas for, um, for how, to, how to get those saves. One of the guys who I like is actually Archie Bradley from the Phillies. And Archie Bradley's uh, ADP, according to Fantasy Pros, is 248. I can look it up real quick on NFBC. On there, his ADP is 263. And the thing is, a lot of people are drafting Hector Neris. Sometimes Hector Neris goes before Archie Bradley, sometimes in the same range. But Archie Bradley had a really solid season last year with the Reds. There are some slight concerns about his velocity being down during spring training, which is always a concern. But at the same time, you don't want to put too much stake into it because a veteran is going to ramp himself up. So keep an eye on that, but don't overreact to it. Last year, small sample, 18 innings. He had a 295 ERA and a 1.09 whip. He struck out 8.84 people per nine innings. And I just feel like... Archie Bradley is a little bit more reliable than Neris, who had a 1.7 whip last year. Hector Neris, I've said it before on the podcast, relies on his splitter. And pitchers who rely on their splitter, it's like a changeup, but with your fingers spread out. It's really hard to have a feel for it consistently. So people who throw a splitter go in and out of having a feel for it. And when they have a feel for it, it has the lowest woe bacon, which is woba on contact. So when a splitter is thrown and hit, it has the lowest Wobacon of any pitch. And Wobacon is just a fun stat to say, you know, it has bacon <laughs> in it. If you are throwing that splitter well, it's a deadly pitch. But if you don't have to feel for it, you're going to walk the whole lineup. And that, that hit Naris last year. So I like Bradley. And it's just as much not liking Naris or not trusting Naris as it is an endorsement of Bradley's skills and his ability. I just feel like he's the guy that... Girardi is going to trust in Philly until he proves us otherwise. 
Nice. I feel like Archie Bradley just uh, one. He's just got a classic baseball name. And two, I kind of just feel like he looks like a classic closer, too. On top of Archie Bradley, we also got a tweet from at Kirby Budnick. And he said, Yates is injured, and so is LeClerc, who I picked up on waivers even after the draft. Who's a closer I can rely on who's outside the top RP 20 to 25? And the first thing I would say, which is kind of a cop-out, but I would say, as fast as you can, go to the waiver wire and see if Jordan Romano is available. Jordan Romano is pretty much probably the replacement for Kirby Yates. That's the first thing I would say. After that, considering the guys in the 20 to 25 range, some of these guys are going to be rostered in your league. Some might not be if you're in a shallow league. I would say Richard Rodriguez. He's a guy who has the job for the Pirates. He might not be available in your league. A guy I really like is Greg Holland. His ADP is 223. Another guy who might be taken in your league, but he's the closer for Kansas City. And I think one reason that he's definitely going to have the job is because Kansas City probably isn't going to be in the playoff race and they're going to try to build up his trade value. So I like Greg Holland as a guy who is actually guaranteed to get some saves early on in the year for Kansas City. So those are two names that I would recommend on top of Jordan Romano. In terms of the Texas Rangers situation, it looks like a bit of a shit show. It seems like maybe two or three of the top guys, LeClerc, Jonathan Hernandez, are hurt. So I don't really know what that situation is right now. Relief pitching is hard, man. I, I mean, we say it every year, but relief pitching seems so hard this year. There's only like eight guys I trust. You know who might show up on the Rangers? Depth oh. chart, closer. He's Ian a guy Ken- that Ian Kennedy is a guy yeah. I like. I think as we're talking, um, I think Ian Kennedy is gaining traction as the possible uh, Rangers closer. Um, Hey, if you are looking at Ranger speculation or save speculation, you could do worse than um, take a flyer out on Ian Kennedy because um, I think um, he could open the season as uh, season as the closer. He's done it before, and he's kind of a funny one where you know he he did the transition. Yeah, that's who. Uh, that's my take. I say go get Ian Kennedy, see how he does. I mean, fuck it. You're getting a flyer on closers. You, you know the nature of the game, right? Anybody who's safe speculating realizes that might not pan out. But I think uh, it's as good a guess as any. And, and that's who I think is going to be the Texas Ranger closer. And I think he's going to do a pretty decent job of it. I like that call. Uh, right now, Roster Resource has it as sort of a split between Matt Bush and Ian Kennedy. Hey, you want to have fun with small sample sizes? You want to fuck around with some small sample sizes? Let's fuck Ian around. Kennedy has been, he has been perfect so far during his Cactus League appearances, striking out four over three spotless frames, according to CBS Fantasy. There you go. Building traction. And once this podcast hits, oh man, his ADP is going to go through the roof, man. So watch out. It's the dude <laughs> with ADP bump. He is, his ADP is going to go through the roof. It will have nothing to do with this CBS Sports article that was published one minute ago saying Rangers, Ian Kennedy could open season as closer. One minute ago, breaking news. Breaking news, 12.26 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. This is probably going to be timestamped a few days before the podcast hits, but you heard it here first. Well, <laughs> you heard the you heard the CBSSports.com article here first. It's yeah. like the office. Uh, when you know you miss 100 percent of the shots you don't take, 
uh, Michael Scott quoting Wayne Gretzky. Um, so yeah, so yeah, uh, yeah. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. I just wanted to deliver our uh, our listeners that breaking news. Oh, you're on fucking fire, man. Um, no, so we we like that, and that actually leads into our last listener question. Thanks again to Kirby Budnick. And now we have a question from mcomer7 on Twitter. And he said, hey, guys, love the podcast. Is Giovanni Gallegos worth a late round pick for save speculation? Thanks. And Giovanni Gallegos is somebody who I believe we drafted in our mock draft in the last pod. And we don't know if he has the job or John Hicks has the job or if it is a split situation. John Hicks is coming back from injuries. He's a guy who throws, well, he's thrown 103 in the past. He's a guy who throws fire, but earlier in his career didn't strike too many people out. Many people think he is the closer heir apparent, but he might not start the year as a closer. What I say about Gallegos to uh, Mr. Comer here is when you're taking a speculative pick or you just want a guy to fill out your roster, you can do a lot worse than Gallegos because Gallegos has elite whip numbers. He usually has a good ERA and he strikes out a shit ton of people. So this is actually, I would say, it's a blind spot in my fantasy game where I don't pick up those middle relievers like Devin Williams. I missed out on Devin Williams last year. I actually drafted Devin Williams around 150 this year, and that's fine. You know, if he's elite, that's great. But the best advice is what? Find the next Devin Williams, right? Find that guy who's going to give you elite ratios, who's going to pick up some wins because he's going to be in the game in close situations like a one-run situation or a tie situation and then his team is going to win him some games so my advice is we don't know if Gallegos is going to be the closer but when it comes to speculating on guys and that last guy in your roster just to boost ratios you can do a lot worse than Gallegos what do you think James yeah you know I I love seeing that question you know um I, I like Gallegos and I like scooping up those you know, peripheral hounds uh, that, you know, oftentimes are middle relievers, even if they're not going to get the saves. Like you said, you know, if you have a guy that gets enough innings and has a like a sub two ERA and then a, and a ridiculous whip, you know, some years it's like a Jeremy Jeffress, um, you know, Giovanni yep. Gallegos. Chad Green on the Yankees is always a, a great guy yeah. to have this on your team. Yeah, you know, I, I just think best case scenario, they get the job. And worst case scenario, we talk about this all the time as, as Gallo lovers and people that don't think you need to shy away from somebody that might have a hole in, in their total game if you can find uh, other players elsewhere to buoy up that average or to, to buoy up those steals or what have you. Um, and I think, you know, there are a lot of closers out there that, somehow keep their job and get you the saves but are just crushing you on era who who was closing for um the rockies for like a solid year with like a five era or something i'm drawing a blind spot but was was that greg holland it might have been i greg think holland. it was greg holland yeah. yeah greg holland like just kept his job even though he, he had like a five era for like a year um and if you're doing that like there's worse things than to have uh gallegos or uh, Jeffress that is going to be bringing that down to, you know, an average of a three or four. So I'm a big believer in those guys because oftentimes I'm scraping for saves and I might be getting a reliever that all of a sudden is going to get absolutely shelled. And you just see that day's ERA where it's like 13 or 20 or something. And you're like, oh, that hit. But then you have um, 
you have Gallegos come in and just have a zero ERA for like a week straight. And, um, and that can really help you out. I think it was Wade Davis, Wade Davis, <laughs> Greg, Greg Holland, Holland wasn't a bad guess. Greg Holland, Wade Davis, both guys who went from the Royals to the Rockies back to the Royals. <laughs> so they have some similarities. That's why I got them confused. <laughs> no, but great point. Um, and once again, thank you, M. Comer7, for the question. Good. So great. So we got a couple ideas for closers. So I'll just go ahead and, and kind of jump into to starting pitching here. I, I will say, just as an aside, I think everybody's probably seeing this. If you haven't drafted yet, you're probably going to see it soon. Mick alluded to it during our mock draft. But starting pitching is going fast in most drafts. You know, it, it is it is a, um, a commodity that people are quickly buying and um, you can watch your starting pitching options kind of dry up before your eyes by you know the fourth round Um, and then then you're kind of trying to find some value deals so looking at the later rounds and and who you might want to target there was just a couple things that I noticed I have a question on a couple guys that are similar in that they had some pretty low ERAs last year projected to be a little bit higher. So I'll start with Adam Wainwright. So Adam Wainwright last year had a 3.15 ERA. That's pretty good for a starting pitcher. You know, obviously it's a weird season and he doesn't strike out the world, but he is a a veteran, a savvy veteran, right? So as far as if you're looking past 250, he's getting drafted around 298. You know, do you think he's somebody that can scrounge up some, you know, decent double digit wins and, and keep that ERA, say sub four? You know, that, that's the that's the first question I have is Adam Wainwright. Do you just say, hey, red flags is old as shit. Or do you think that he is somebody that we're talking, you know, he's he might just be your fourth starting pitcher or something on, on the squad, but somebody who can at least be an innings eater and 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 hopefully get you a couple wins. So getting him around 298, that's that's a risk I'm willing to take. Really good year last year, like you said. I've kind of been thinking about these central pitchers and taking what they did last year with a little bit of a grain of salt because of they only played the central divisions. And I talked about this in the last pod with um, Kansas City Royals, Detroit Tigers, Cubs, Reds, Pirates. These teams, none of them had a good offense. And it was kind of surprising that teams like the Cubs and the Reds didn't even hit well. And the Reds had a really stacked lineup, or at least it seemed like that on paper. And they play in a hitter's park, but they really struggled. And teams in the Central only played other teams in the Central in last year. So is he going to repeat last year? No. But that wasn't your question. You You were asking, can he have a ERA around four? And I think so. Again, he's not going to strike out a lot, maybe seven to eight Ks per nine. But we're talking about the last round. So anybody you draft might might have it, have their warts. Like you said, he's a savvy guy. So I think he is a investment that makes sense right at the end there. Nice. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. Even though I don't think any of these guys are going to you know light the world on fire, unless you have a couple maybe younger guys or coming you know guys coming off injuries, which I think was another question that we've had uh, posed to us that we'll address. But um, kind of sticking with just a couple guys that um, I'm thinking of more, you know, I don't think these guys are necessarily going to break out, but they might give you those quality, you know, innings and and keep your ERA down and and get you some wins there. So another guy that just kind of caught my eye as a um, as a sub three ERA guy last year was um, Zach Davies. 
So he's sub three ERA last year. And um, another guy, he's not going to strike out the world, right? So he might hurt you there. But um, depending on your league, if he gets, you know, quality starts or wins, depending on what you got and what your league kind of captures or counts. Um, he's another guy that just caught my eye as maybe just a cheap option to keep your ERA down, get you some innings, and uh, he's on a you know a decent enough team that he might get you some wins. Uh, what, what are your thoughts on Zach Davies? I actually really like Zach Davies, and it's kind of cool that he's going to the Cubs because if there's anybody in the league who you would compare to Kyle Hendricks, it's probably Zach Davies. Zach Davies is in the fifth percentile for... Uh, fastball velocity. He's not a guy who will blow it by you. His fastball was 88.4 miles per hour on average. So hey, he's got Kyle Hendricks beat. <laughs> and you love your command specialists. I know you love the guys that can paint the corners um, and do it with savvy. So yeah, you know, just somebody to keep an eye on. And one thing I wanted to ask you, and I'm kind of just bringing this on you, not that we ever just so the podcast faithful know, usually I like to keep Mick on his toes and I don't give him too much of a heads up of, uh, who I am going to ask him about. Thank God he generally doesn't do the same thing to me. Otherwise, I would come off looking like a moron half the time. One thing I wanted to ask you is, I, I was doing some dives into these players today for the for the segment, and I, I love, and we've done this before, but another just completely unabashed endorsement for fan graphs. So probably the best advice I think me and Mick can probably give you is, go look at the shit that fan graphs is writing up if you're not already, because... You know, if you're in a league where somebody else isn't looking at fan graphs, you're going to definitely have an advantage because they're fantastic. Um, and it's just a fun little community there, too. But when I look at fan graphs, I just have a question. You know, there's a few different projection systems, right? You know, when you look at it and if you don't mind, just out of curiosity, which one do you put the most credence towards or which one do you kind of value the most? I think most people like to look at zips the most. Is, is that is that right? And Zips also generally tends to be more pessimistic in my experience. But do you mind just giving us a brief idea when you do look at fan graphs and you do look at projections, which projection you kind of value the highest and maybe just give us a rough idea if you know it, kind of what goes into that projection? Yeah. You know, I'm a big projections guy because when I do my draft, I make spreadsheets and I want to understand how good a guy is in terms of z-score and what is z-score it's a combination of the stats that are counted in roto baseball so in most leagues you know that's five by five and on fangraphs there are a lot of different projection systems there's zips there's steamer depth charts atc the bat and the bat x zips is done by dan zimborski and the thing I've noticed about Zips, it, I think you're right. It does seem pessimistic. But the other thing that Zips does is they give projections to prospects. So you can look at a prospect like Jeter Downs, a guy, you know, a prospect for the Red Sox, and say, if he's given 600 plate appearances, what do they think he's going to do based on past history of people like him with his skill set coming to the majors with what he's done in the, in the minors? And Zips will do that. And it'll usually be like an 80 WRC+. Plus. For yeah. most prospects, because they're like, you're not going to be good in your rookie year. We've seen that with Vlad. I mean, Vlad had above 100 WRC plus, but still, you know, disappointing. It's hard to be good right away. I think that we've just been a little bit spoiled, too, of late with like, it's like, why isn't Vladito amazing immediately when we had your Sotos and your Tatises uh, of the world and your Acunas that seem to just come out uh, of the gate? 
you know, fully formed, <laughs> like, like Mike Trout esque um, talent already. So I think people kind of forget that sometimes. Yeah, exactly. And um, just as a side note, when you're doing dynasty, sometimes those best prospects to get are the ones who actually aren't prospects anymore, who came up, had a disappointing rookie year, and then everybody kind of sours on them. But then you look at their scouting grades and they had a 55 out of 80, which, you know, is elite or close to elite and give them a second chance. And if you do that in Dynasty, uh, over the long term, you're going to find some hidden gems. So back to projections, I'll get right into my favorite. My favorite is ATC. And that's a projection system by Ariel Cohen, who's a uh, is a good follow on Twitter as well. And the whole gist of ATC is that it is it's like the 538 of projections where Nate Silver from 538, who some people don't love, but the point is he takes a whole bunch of different estimations and projections and puts them together and gets an average. And something that ATC does is it doesn't average everything equally. What it does is says, hey, last year or, you know, not just last year, but over like a five-year period, this projection system is superior when it comes to this stat or that stat. So you know what? I'm going to weight that stat heavier. So what you end up getting with ATC, a more in the middle type of projection, you're not going to get that extreme projection. You're not going to get that the projection that is the lowest, but you're going to get somewhere in the middle. But you're also going to get a projection system that in theory is weighting the systems that do a better job of certain things more. Nice. Yeah. So that's I think that's, the, you know, that's the kind of shit I know when I listen to a podcast that I really like to take away from. It, it's something that you can use and, and practice when you're um, when you're trying to figure shit out. I fall into a trap where oftentimes I like to look at projections when I'm trying to get somebody. But I also like to look at them after I've gotten them, which I'm sure is the backwards way to do it. And then I tend to just like whichever projection system tells me I made the right choice and is the most <laughs> optimistic. Um, so that is definitely helpful to, to get your take on which one you think kind of um, might be the most helpful. And, and I think that's just a cool concept in, in terms of how they kind of take an aggregate, but say a weighted aggregate of um, all sorts of different projection systems. Um, so ATC people, go out, look at it, go to Fangraphs, jump on one of Dan Simborski's chats. He's a funny guy. Um, and, and it's a fun little community there. If you can find a pocket, we've talked about this before, and it's one of the things I love about fantasy baseball. But if you can just find a pocket where you just have generally positive people that aren't like just hating on each other and they're just sharing a common interest, I think that it's just it's when the Internet is actually good. You know, my, well, you know, I, I just think um, it, it's hard to find sometimes uh, these these nice little corners of the internet that aren't just soulless, vile places. And, um, and, and Fangraphs is definitely one of them. Another system that I'd want to mention is the Bat X. The guy who makes the Bat X also makes the Bat, of course. His name is Derek Cardi. And that system rated very, very well as for the 2020 season. The Bat X is supposed to be sort of an upgrade from his, the Bat system, I suppose. And when you were talking about pockets of the internet where there's positivity... I thought of both sides of it. I thought of, you know, we are a relatively new podcast. This is our third year. And the fantasy baseball community has been great. It's been, it's such a, you know, good back and forth, people giving each other advice. But I remember one thing where Derek Cardi had said his bat projection didn't rate Fernando Tatis Jr. that well. So he said, I'm fading Tatis this year. 
And of course, Tatis had a really amazing rookie year in 2019. And so many people gave him hate. And it was just a little bit ridiculous because it's a projection system. It's a system based off history, right? It's a system based off what happened in the past and what is expected to happen in the future. You're going to get some wrong. But over the long term and over the aggregate, I'm a big projection guy, as you know. Yeah, and anybody that thinks that there's a magic wand out there that somebody or somebody has like the Rosetta Stone that can speak the language of baseball projections, then, you know, you're going to be disappointed. You know, no, no one's going to bat a thousand uh, to stick with the baseball references. So, yeah, we got a, a couple pitchers there, but I'm going to let you take this away. And, and we had a couple questions. We talked about it in the mock draft, and I think it is a really important question because I've led with just some guys that I'm thinking, hey, if this guy is uh, the fourth best pitcher on your team and he doesn't hurt you too bad and you get him cheap, you know, maybe that's just not that's not exactly sexy. But when we are talking about, um, you know, a young Audrey Hepburn, we're talking about these absolute studs coming off Tommy John injuries. And and obviously, when we talk about these young studs, we're going to be talking about your Thors. We're going to be talking about your Chris Sales, and we're going to be talking about your Severinos. First off, without even judging their talent or maybe the type of pitcher they are, and if you think that they're going to be able to come off a certain injury better or worse than a different you know, um, pitcher with a different kind of uh, grab bag of tricks, who do you think is in line to just be healthy the soonest uh, with that trio? I think it's Chris Sale or Noah Syndergaard. And I think with those two, there are circumstances that make that the case. For example, I think Syndergaard will probably be the first of all three. Even though he didn't have surgery the first, I think Syndergaard is going to be a free agent this upcoming year. So he has a little bit more of that incentive to get back out there. And he's really, really ramping it up. He's also got an enabling uh, medical staff over there. So, you know, I don't think anybody thinks that the Mets are exactly a good staff when it comes to making sure that their players, you know, take a pause and, and stay healthy. So he, he both has an incentive to, to start pitching earlier, and he, he probably has a, an enabling uh, um, staff. They've probably changed the staff. Maybe I shouldn't shit all over the Mets. Uh, we, you know, we're not going to hold you to it, but Crystal Ball, when do you think we might see him on the mound in, in an actual game setting? Roto-Wire. A major league game setting. Yeah, Roto-Wire always does their estimated returns, hat tip to Roto-Wire, hat tip to Jeff Erickson, who had us on the pod last year. And they predict Noah Syndergaard to be the first back at June 1st. He was put on the 60-day IL. So the earliest he come, can come back is late May. So even if he's rearing and ready to beat that timeline, Syndergaard literally is not eligible to come back until late May. So there you go for Syndergaard. I think you can expect him in late May or early June. So you said Sale is probably next on the list. And then I think Severino's, I don't know if he's in even the same conversation, although I think he is starting to throw. Would you say it's fair to say that it's mostly Thor, Sale are going to be kind of the earlier one and most people expect Severino to be maybe a few weeks to a month behind them? Or, or am I thinking, I might be mixing up because we do have Verlander too, but I don't even think Verlander is really in the conversation because I think he's out for the whole year. I think he might've been a little optimistic that he would, come in for, say, a playoff scenario, but um, that's not going to help any fantasy baseball guys. So where do you see Sale versus Severino? Sale had, and, you know, he obviously he had a uh, Tommy John surgery, but he's had some some issues with other parts of his body and his recovery. 
Chris Sale is not yet ready for mound work, according to RotoWire. So he's not ahead of schedule. He's, in fact, he's behind schedule. So that's unfortunate for Chris Sale. When I drafted him in two of my leagues a little bit earlier, I was a little bit more optimistic about him coming back earlier. So right now we're looking at maybe mid-June, something like that for Chris Sale. And what about uh, Severino? Severino actually had the surgery first. He had Tommy John surgery back last February. So you would have expected him to be first back. But I think there's a couple of factors with Severino, too. And one of the factors Let is that— Let me guess. Is one of them that the Yankees are just the fucking Yankees and they're going to be good enough that they can wait a little bit with uh, exactly. Severino coming back? That's exactly what I was going to say. They're not going to rush him. He's not a free agent like Syndergaard. So there's no rush for them to— bring him back. And there's no rush for him to force himself to come back like maybe there is with Syndergaard hoping to make himself some money next summer. So with Severino, he is throwing fastballs. He is throwing bullpens. So maybe that's a good sign in terms of being in front of Chris Sale. But Rotowire projects him for mid-July. And I think when he comes back, don't be surprised if he is a late-inning relief guy for a couple of weeks. Or they do some weird things with him, like he goes three innings, four innings, but doesn't go five, six, seven innings. Yeah, Yeah. to use an NBA analogy, it might be a little bit like your powerhouse teams that are are realizing now that why play their guys every night? You know, there there is kind of the players union agreement, I think, where they go back and forth on like, do we really need to even have a reason to not play these guys? You know, think of your Greg Popovich um, who will just rest guys, you know, and the NBA saying, hey, we need to. And I get both sides of it. Normally, you know, I'm I'm generally on. um, the, the players and the coaches side, but I do get that, hey, fans pay to see a product and if you're just sitting your best players and these guys, you know, spent $200 to get tickets to take their kid to the game, they might want to be able to watch um, Steph Curry say, you know, play basketball instead of um, the, the, the B squad. You know, it is definitely, I think, in the NBA, a super big trend where it's like, hey, we're going to rest these guys so that we're healthy in the playoffs, which if you're just trying to win, we're trying to win the NBA title, it makes all the sense in the world. And maybe we'll see that a little bit. And obviously, you need to be the Yankees in order to be able to do that, because the Yankees are probably going to be able to get to the playoffs without having to leverage uh, one of the best pitchers in baseball to do so. I I think the way we see it then is, let's just say, and tell me if I'm wrong, we are going to go Thor first. And I really like the reasons you gave. I think that's good stuff. It gives you insight into both the team and the player. And uh, then we'll go sail with the caveat being that he has had some setbacks, but the team is probably going to need him sooner if we're in the middle of a playoff run. God, I hope we are. And um, and then uh, we, we, we would put Severino on the back end, even though he was the first to have the surgery. I will add that even prior to the surgery and, and Sale, I don't know. I mean, he was having some issues just in general that might not have even been related to why he needed Tommy John. Or do you think his early struggles there were probably because of the the necessity for his Tommy John surgery? I'm willing to uh, give him the benefit of the doubt that that most of it was that he was playing injured. And sort of of like what we talked about in the last pod where we said Chris Sale has an incredible work ethic. A guy like Chris Sale being like, I've played through pain my whole life. I'm going to do this. And even with that said, he did have a 440 ERA in 2019, but a 109 whip and an absurd 35.6 K rate. So even <laughs> when he was struggling and probably hurt, this guy was still striking out people at an absolutely elite rate. So in it, terms of talent, 
Chris Sale number one in terms of coming back and for this year, maybe Syndergaard number one. However, I will put this caveat. We talked about the Yankees being like, hey, if we make the playoffs these days, you don't even want to get wild card because wild card could be a one and done. Could be like a March Madness situation. You play a team and you just lose one game and you're out. There's two reasons I could bring that up. The first is if the Yankees are in a situation where they're on that line where, hey, we might have to, the Blue Jays say, are possibly going to win this division. Maybe they have to rely on Severino a little more. But the other reason why I brought up the Yankees, you think about the Dodgers too, as a team who sort of takes their time with people who are injured, gives people breaks, is if you have confidence in yourself as a fantasy baseball manager and with this other caveat that you're in a head-to-head league and you say, hey, I can make the playoffs. Just give me the best players when I get to the playoffs. In that situation, if you're in a home league and you back yourself to make the playoffs, then go ahead and get one or two of these guys and stash them on your IR. And then when it comes time where they're back and they're healthy, you're going to have a dominant team. So thanks to Kyle Harb on Twitter for that question. So, Mickey, we covered a lot of pitching. I kind of introduced the guys. Were there anybody that caught your eye that you wanted to stump for um, as far as pitching goes? There's one guy that I'm kind of excited to talk about, and that's Eliezer Hernandez. And his current ADP is around 260, and he plays for the Miami Marlins. The Marlins have a really good and exciting pitching staff. They got Sixto Sanchez. They got Sandy Alcantara. They got Pablo Lopez. Those are guys that you should be drafting in the first 10 rounds of your draft. But then there's Eliezer Hernandez, and he's going 263, and... There's a couple things he's getting docked for, and one of the things he's getting docked for is that he's a two-pitch pitcher. He throws a four-seamer, and he throws a slider. But you know who else has two pitches? Tyler Glasnow, Denelson Lamette, and these guys have had dominant seasons. Last year, Eliezer Hernandez, in a small sample size, we always have to bring that up, 25.2 innings, really pitched well, 3.16 ERA, 34 strikeouts in just those 25.2 innings. One of the most elite strikeout rates in the whole major leagues. Question for you, Mick. I don't want to put you on the spot. What would you say is the different, you know, average differential between the speed that he's thrown on his four seamer and the slider? Is it a big difference? You know, sometimes you'll have a guy like Thor that'll just throw a complete gas slider at you. You know, does he use that to, you know, his advantage? Would you say he? Would you say he puts them on a similar path at all, or? You know, is it, does he try to trick you with it? Or, you know, how would you say that, you know, differentiates just how do you get away with having two pitches? You know, how does he work with it? It's a great question. And his fastball stinks. It gave up a Woba over 400 in both of his first two years. So what he's trying to do is just get to that two strike count so he can throw that slider. But other pitchers, like I said, have had success with that. In terms of the velocity gap in between them, there's a good velocity gap. 91 on his fastball, his slow fastball, and 79 on his slider. His slider had a 39% whiff rate. Really, really good. And it's not just 2020. In 2019, while he didn't have the ERA to back it up, 5 ERA, 124 whip. That 124 whip kind of says, hey, he was unlucky. And in fact, baseball savant expected slugging, expected Woba. He was one of the most unlucky pictures back in 2019. So I like what he did in 2020. In 2019, he was unlucky. I'm willing to take Eliezer Hernandez at 263 at the back end of my drafts. 
And you know what I will say, and then we can we can segue uh, past pitching. But I like that you brought up somebody because I, I went the very boring route. And I think that if Hernandez pans out, he's a little bit sexier. You know, he has that that high K rate. So you're you're kind of looking generally when you're looking late in a draft, you know, you have your kind of boring guys and then you have your guys that might be sexier with a little higher potential. And you're probably, you know, th- hey, they're there for a reason. Right. So obviously you're going to have a red flag season, like I think you said, as 2019 was or you're going to have an injury concern or something. But you're targeting these people knowing that there's some risk involved. But the ceiling there is a little bit higher. Um, as opposed to some of the guys I talked about where you're targeting them and just saying, hey, they're not going to light the world on fire. But if they play OK, you know, that's good enough for a um, a fourth or, you know, what have you starter, depending on, on your, your league and, and how many st- you know starting pitchers you carry. So one of our Twitter questions I think we need to address came from a I think it was a Murph Waddlecock. Um, and Murph Waddlecock brought up something interesting. Uh, macho man, Randy Savage was actually a baseball player. He was a minor leaguer. I don't think he ever made it to the majors, but, um, his, I'll tell you what, his card, his, his baseball card, pretty handsome. And Hey, you know, he's a talented guy. It goes down with like, say, uh, Dwayne Johnson, right? The, with the rock playing for the uh, Miami hurricanes. So I am acting like I knew all of this, but it, it's actually a little bit news to me. Were you familiar with uh, macho man, Randy Savage being a minor leaguer? If I knew I had forgotten because yeah. when, when Murph brought it up, I had no idea. <laughs> yeah. So um, we did promise Murph Waddlecock that we would talk a little macho man, Randy Savage. Um, I loved wrestling in the and as a kid um, in the you know early '90s, and I'll say just real quick favorite wrestlers. Um, Hacksaw Jim Duggan was a big one. You know, mm-hmm. um, I had a coworker actually that said I reminded them of a young Hacksaw, um, which I said was probably the nicest thing anybody's ever said to me before. Um, so we have Hacksaw Jim Duggan. I was a you know I wasn't as big of a Hulk Hogan fan as you would think. Um, I, not that I didn't like him, but I would say Macho Man was up there. You know, he had his Slim Jim commercials. I, I'm just kind of desperately grasping at, you know, any sort of Macho Man, <laughs> Randy Savage content that I can think of. Um, but the number one thing I will say, as far as my relationship to Macho Man, Randy Savage, as far as a fan, is that there was a really popular brand of... I, I want to call them stuffed animals. They weren't dolls, but the wrestlers had these like stuffed, they were like pillows almost, you know, of the wrestler. I don't know if you ever had one of these, but I had a Macho Man Randy Savage one and I treated it like it was like a, a stuffed bear, you know, like I would just walk around with my Macho Man Randy Savage uh, doll, I guess, or whatever you want to call the thing. Um, so, you know, I was a, I was a fan as a, as a young lad. Um, where did you stand? Were you were you a Macho Man uh, Randy Savage fan? I was a ra- Macho Man Randy Savage fan, but my brothers were bigger Macho Man fans, especially my oldest brother. That was his golden era of WWF or WWE. It used to be called WWF. And that was his golden era. And my oldest brother still sends little clips or like little YouTube videos of Randy Savage uh, interviews. And the thing that I didn't really know about Randy Savage because... To me, he was just this goofy guy who said, oh, yeah, a lot and stuff like that, is that he was really intelligent. His vocabulary was amazing. Like the words that he would use, he was kind of like 
Stephen A. Smith <laughs> in the sense that he would throw in really big words into the conversation, uh, like when he was getting interviewed. And I was like, oh, I didn't realize he was an intellectual. Yeah. Um, you know, he also loved to snap into Slim Jims. Oh, that guy loved to snap into Slim Jims. <laughs> and another memory I have of him from childhood is he was in the first Spider-Man movie with uh, Tobey Maguire. When Tobey Maguire goes to the uh, wrestling match, he fights Randy Savage. So ah. that's another reference. I also remember my brother or I bought WWE figurines. So we had Randy Savage. We had Jake the Snake, the Ultimate oh, Warrior. Oh, shit. Jake the Snake was my favorite. I liked Undertaker, too, but... I like the idea that Jake the Snake had snake, a snake. You know, yeah. that was cool. Yeah. And so we had these figurines. And then, like, every year during the summer, our whole town would have a yard sale. And I put them out and I sold them. And this guy came and he was like, you're selling these? And I probably sold them for, like, two bucks each. Like, a year later, this guy's talking. He's like, oh, man, this one time during the yard sale. I, and he was talking to me. He was talking to me. And he's like, this idiot sold me these figurines. Like those things go for like a hundred a pop or fifty a pop or whatever it was, and I was like, "He's talking about me." <laughs> <laughs> Did you confront him? No, I didn't say that. I I sold them. I was just so embarrassed. I was like thirteen or fourteen. Well, that guy should have been embarrassed for taking advantage of a ten-year-old. Yeah. <laughs> the reason that I had I was talking to him was that I used to help my buddy roof. His dad was a roofer, and. Uh, we would do stuff like we'd pick up the shingles from around the house and stuff. And that guy was like doing the same job as I was. And he was like 40. So fuck him, man. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, he was doing the same job you were, except for when he was, you know, finding uh, you know, 12 year olds to, to rob. Um, <laughs> the, uh, you know, and this this can be the end of our discussion on on wrestling. But, you know, I liked wrestling for a while. I don't really watch it that much uh, regularly anymore here and there, maybe. But um, that era of wrestling to me is almost more like, I guess I watched it. I definitely watched it, but it was almost more like the commercials that they were in and just the characters that they were, you know, is, is more like what I remember. Um, I remember a little bit of like maybe Jake the Snake, like putting a snake in the under, <laughs> Undertaker's like coffin or something. I think that happened at one point. But um, later on was when I started, you know, with the Stone Cold Steve Austin and the rock and stuff is probably when I was a little bit older and kind of remember some of it. Thank you, Murph Waddlecock, for um, bringing that fun piece of uh, wrestling in, in baseball trivia. And um, go to Fangraphs, pull up some old YouTube Macho Man, Randy Savage clips, buy some Slim Jims. Don't sell your old you figurines. Anything else? <laughs> What's that? Oh, yeah. Don't yeah, sell your old go figurine. find some poor kid that doesn't realize that his baseball cards are worth that much money, which, <laughs> by the way, if you aren't sure of, oh, another tip to our podcast faithful baseball cards, probably not early 90s ones, but um, baseball cards are, are absolutely insane right now. Um, if you haven't seen, they're like this whole idea of um, uh, alternative investments, you know, and um, and and a different type of asset class if you want to get into all that but long story short is that baseball cards especially basketball cards but playing cards they're probably like 10 times what they were nine months ago you know the valuable ones if not more they're, they're going crazy uh i you know i have a buddy who has a kobe bryant card that he got offered ten thousand dollars for like if you go look at your old baseball cards you down with obp faithful see if you have something uh I think most of the ones I found in my parents' house were 
late 80s, early 90s, which I think, unfortunately, and it might have changed because it's a shifting landscape of investments. I think most of those are, are generally worthless. But I saw a Griffey rookie card that might be worth something. Look for your Jordan cards. Look for your Jordan cards. You can find a couple fleet like 90, 91 Jordan cards or something. Um, th- those might be worth some good cheddar. But uh, it's just another life tip. Go go find your baseball cards. See if they're valued at anything special and, and make a couple bucks. Well, that's all I have tonight, Mick. It's been super fun, as always, talking baseball with you, talking Macho Man Randy Savage with you. I love the idea that you had to interact with the the fans on Twitter. I think that was really fun. Um, Like you said, I think one of the best things about fantasy baseball is the kind of the community around it. Big ups to Fangraphs. Big ups to Jeff Erickson for having us on the podcast last year. What else you got? Anything else or... No, I think that wraps it up. You can catch us at our Twitter, at OBP. That's the letter U. You can also find us at the, our website, udownwithobp.com. Thanks for listening, as always, and we will catch you next time. Take care. Take it easy, Mickey. Good talking to you. And we'll talk to you soon, You Down With OBP Faithful.